We have been for over a year now studying the different tenets of the statement of faith of our church statement, and we've come now last week and again this week to study the teaching of believers' baptism, and we refer to it as that because it defines what baptism we're talking about, the baptism of believers, those who are professing their open and public faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We're going to examine several verses of Scripture tonight, but we'll use as a springboard the text found in Romans chapter 6. We read there in, in the Gospel of Mark about our Lord's baptism, the other Gospel writers Record it, and we mentioned his baptism last Lord's Day evening. And we see here that, that Paul uses this as a picture to discuss to the Romans their position in Christ, what their baptism pictures. And that's one thing we need to make very clear, this, this portrait of baptism. What does it stand for? What does it uh, picture? What shall we say then, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 6 in verse 1, They've asked a question, and he's answering it. The question has arisen. There was some discussion among uh, the, the believers there of the place of sin in a believer's life. The erroneous teaching had crept into the church already, uh, and it is prevalent today. There's nothing new under the sun. The teaching of antinomianism that uh, we can, in grace, do whatever we want to because, after all, God gets great glory out of forgiving sinners and we can just sin. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing that God gets upset about. And so just continue to sin. And God can, in a weird way, certainly does, it is strange in, in teaching with the scriptures that even believers could, could think this way, that God would get great glory out of continually forgiving sin in believers' lives. That's not to say that even as believers we do not sin and stand in need of cleansing and help from the Lord. But how does Paul answer? That's the question that was asked. And we can tell it by the way he answers. What shall we say then? In other words, to that, to that, to that kind of assumption. Shall we continue in sin? He's asking this question out loud. Like, are you saying that we're going to keep on just sinning, living any way we want to, that grace may abound? That's what you're saying? God forbid, away with a thought, or someone might say a thousand times, no, how shall we? It's, it's a mechanical impossibility, he's saying, for those who are truly in Christ to continue to practice sin as a lifestyle. How shall we that are dead to sin, he's pictured what takes place at conversion, live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. And truly he's speaking there of the spiritual baptism. When a person repents and believes on Christ, the conversion that takes place, we're actually placed in Christ, the scripture tells us. Now no ordinance does that. No uh, deed of man does that. And so the picture here is what does that represent? The word they were going to study, the word baptized, means to place or immerse or to absolutely placed into something totally we've been placed in christ we've been by the new birth we've been made his and so that pictures something what is it picturing therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death our the ordinance of baptism pictures what has taken place in the heart the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ as well as the death, burial, and resurrection of the old man, we're raised to walk in newness of life. And that's a, an object lesson for what has taken place, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
For if we had been planted, another word for that word baptized, the word immersed, planted, placed into, into the gather in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So these, he's clearly teaching what baptism represents. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion unto him, over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And let not sin therefore reign in your mortal or your physical body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, resurrected from the dead, as Lazarus who've been called forth out of the grave. We're to live with newness of life, for ye are... Uh, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord, this is your word for us tonight, and we pray that you teach us and instruct us, and maybe someone who's faltering in their, their faith, Lord, or their profession of faith, we pray that, that that would be very clear to them, or maybe someone has not been obedient to you in this area, we pray that you would bless and help them as well, and show them the necessity and the, the, the blessing of following you in all areas of life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We, when we look at, at baptism as a picture, we, we see, first of all, a portrait of obedience. And we read the, the, the gospel record just to remind us, our Lord who knew no sin, obedient, the writer of Hebrews tells us, in all things and set a pattern. He told John that he must fulfill all righteousness. He was fully vetted and qualified to be the Savior by his sinless life. And because also he met every demand, every situation as a pattern for us. And so as we follow our Lord's example and his command, as we read in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And this is truly a command given to us our Lord. Some people approach it like it really doesn't matter. It's not something to get, you know, uh, all in an in uproar about. You can take it or leave it, that kind of thing. But, but when the Lord says, go and do this, it's very uh, expressive. You're to go to every nation and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the, those who are converted, who believe on me, baptize them and to teach them to, to observe all things what I've commanded you. And this is one of the things that he's taught. He gives to the apostles that becomes part of the apostles' doctrine and for us to teach to every generation of believers. Not only is it a picture, it is, it is, secondly, it's a portrait of God's grace to us and represents his forgiveness of sins in a very uh, real way, a very visible way. 
It's also a picture of being raised, as we've mentioned, to newness of life in Christ. As the candidate rises up from the watery grave of baptism, he is illustrating the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And did not our Lord tell us, because I live, you shall live also. We're promised a resurrection just like his. And a follower of Christ, when they follow him in baptism, is saying, I believe he is the Savior, the only Savior. And because he has been raised from the dead, I too shall live one day and be raised from the dead as well. We've been completely changed by our salvation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And so it pictures the conversion that takes place in the inner man, in the soul, and we express it openly by this wonderful and beautiful ordinance of believer's baptism. It also identifies us with our Savior in a clear way. Uh, unlike anything else, this ordinance shows I am his and he is mine. I willingly own my Lord and I will follow him as he gave us this example. I'm his and it marks us as his disciple in such a clear and unmistakable way. And that he went before us to show the way and we willingly follow after him and we follow his blessed example. The only mode that adequately portrays all this, we're speaking of a picture, an object lesson, the only mode that that adequately, or method that adequately pictures this is the immersion of a believer beneath water. When we point to the symbol, uh, and baptism is a symbol, the symbol must adequately portray what it's standing for. If I say something is a symbol for something and there's no link there whatsoever, the symbol has lost its meaning. And so baptism must represent as a picture, it must, the, the symbol must show what's taking place. What does it stand for? The symbol must adequately portray what is, it is supposed to illustrate. There are two ordinances the Lord has given his church. We call the one the Lord's Supper, where the elements are taken and represent his body and his blood. It's very clear what those ordinances represent. And the other is baptism. And that too should clearly represent what has taken place in the candidate's heart. If the candidate is not immersed, then the picture does not illustrate adequately the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the future resurrection of true believers in Christ. It doesn't picture that the old life is buried and and we're raised again to walk in newness of life. When, as I've mentioned, we take the Lord's Supper and we take those symbolic elements, the, the piece of unleavened bread, as tiny as it is, it still is unleavened bread and it represents the body of Christ. He gave us that. He says, this is my body. Take, eat. This represents the body that has been sacrificed for you and the fruit of the vine, which represents his shed blood. And though they are small amounts and just symbols and pictures, they vividly portray those larger truths. We believe in believer's baptism and we emphasize believer. Those who can testify to a conversion experience that like the, the man of old, I was blind, but now I see. I am now a follower of Christ. I've been made whole. Or the Gadarene demoniac or Mary Magdalene who was delivered of devils who were clothed in their right mind. This was my old life, but I've passed from that. I'm a new creature in Christ. And we are testifying that we have passed from death to life. We've been saved. Saved from sin. Saved from eternity of separation from, against and away from God they can assent to and agree that this has truly taken place, believers can. This is my testimony. As we sing, this is my story. This is my song. 
I am a believer in Christ. This is, I have passed from death unto life. And we can testify, the candidate can truly testify that that has taken place within. And they are publicly and consciously, and I'm emphasizing this on purpose because there are erroneous teachings about who can be candidates for baptism. A believer can consciously agree, consent, and confess that Christ is their Savior. An infant cannot do that. There are those who hold to infant baptism, but it has none of that picture whatsoever. The infant does not consent. They're not publicly confessing Christ as Savior or that they've passed from, from death unto life. It is obvious from the command given in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen that I read to you that the teaching that salvation, uh, what salvation is and that Christ is the only Savior and that only those who have been taught are then the candidates for the baptism that he teaches. Teach there in the Greek means to indoctrinate, to make disciples of. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, in that momentous occasion when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he, he tells his, his audience when they asked after they've been convicted by the Holy Spirit of their crimes, and they said, what can we do? Uh, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. He gives that clear command, and we see that baptism follows their repentance, or one who has received and believed the gospel. We have no example whatsoever, no precedent in the New Testament of an infant being baptized. There just is no record of it. And those who teach otherwise have to, to get their teaching outside the Scripture as far as a precedent for where we could point to uh, uh, someone that, that is a picture of it. There's no infant in the New Testament uh, that follows the Lord in baptism. And by the way, it's interesting, and I'm not here to pick uh, points, but just as we're teaching what we believe here, those who baptize infants don't give them the other ordinance uh, of the church. They don't give them the Lord's Supper, for example. While they may advocate what they call the baptism of infants, they do not give them the other ordinance, the Lord's Table. And so it's a little incongruous there. And again, these ordinances have been given to believers, those who openly profess Christ as Savior. All those given in the New Testament uh, as examples were adults who had been saved. Now, we might ask then, when did or how did the practice uh, among some of baptizing infants come about? There's no record of it at all in the first 100 or 200 years of church history. You begin to see it in the, the second century, and then it became, in some areas, became more and more uh, something that was practiced. But not until then. You see no ev evidence of it in the Scripture, nor in the church history for the first 200 years. And those who do advocate infant baptism make a broad assumption, which we have to be very careful when we come to Bible teaching to do that. We may all be tempted to be guilty of something in, in that area, but we ought to be careful to make assumptions. Many who teach, you may ask, how do they justify it or how, what ground do they stand upon, will use such examples as when the Philippian jailer and his household uh, were, were saved and followed the Lord in baptism, they uh, assumed that, it, that the Philippian jailer had infants in his household because the word household is used so broadly. They argue there had to be babies in his household, and the Bible says his household were baptized. Well, you're making, you're jumping, you're making real big leaps 
there in the scripture. Again, the scripture does not say that, and you're assuming something uh, that the scripture doesn't teach. Uh, Acts 16.33 reads, uh, He was baptized, he and all of his, straightway. We aren't told that there were babies or little children, for that matter, in that number. And so, you, as I mentioned, you make a broad assumption to add babies into a scenario where adults and older children are, are more probably and logically in the picture when you look at all the evidence there in the whole story. Verse 32 of that text tells us that Paul preached unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. So what preceded their baptism, the clear preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he asked, what should I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in thy house and thou shalt be saved. So the, the prerequisites of, of salvation were given and clearly taught. And then he and his household uh, followed the Lord in, in baptism. These people were obviously old enough to receive his message and to believe it and to respond to it. Later, the Bible tells us that the jailer happily received the gospel with all of his house. And so it's not unreasonable to think, as I've heard some writers even say that as a Roman soldier, he was an older man and that probably all of his children were older. Well, we can't go that far and make that, that point, but we can just read the scripture and let the scriptures explain themselves, the logic there. Some points back to Acts chapter 2 that we mentioned. And by the way, a lot of erroneous assumptions are made from this chapter. And one of them is that in Acts 2, verse 39, where Peter says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. This promise of salvation is for you and my audience, your descendants, your children, and to as many as the Lord shall call. Speaking of those to us in the future who will be saved in the future until making up the church until the Lord comes back. No doubt in the context, Peter's referring to generations to come after them who believe the gospel and who will be saved as well. In fact, when we read the number of those saved, it was 3,000 men. You notice the emphasis on, is on men, and we know that, that there are others as well, that women were saved. But the, the teaching there indicates that they were people old enough to understand and consent and agree and repent and call on the Lord in salvation. The call of God in his word by his spirit must be heard and must be received and acted upon. And so babies cannot be in view there. It's, it's illogical. In fact, Acts 2.41 clears it up for us. And the scripture will do that if we allow it. You read long enough and far enough and the Bible will explain itself. In that very text, it tells us who they were that were baptized. Who was it? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. These people, however old that they were, were old enough to receive gladly and understand and act upon what they heard. An infant can't receive his word. And uh, that's just uh, very clear. Often those who espouse baptism for infants link it to the Old Testament rite of circumcision, a very curious thing when you think about it, as if baptism replaces that Old Testament rite that the Lord gave to, to Jewish men only and to male babies uh, eight days after their birth. And they propose that, that God's covenant with Abraham and his seed was a spiritual covenant and that the sign of that covenant was the circumcision made of male babies. 
they reason that under the new covenant through the church of the Lord Jesus, which they say replaces Israel, another erroneous teaching, I believe, but under that theology that the church replaces Israel, then, then it would follow, if you're reasoning that way, that the sign and the seal of the new covenant is baptism. You understand? If it was the sign in the old, under the old covenant, and if the church is replacing Israel, then the rite of, or the ordinance of baptism replaces the rite of circumcision. So because babies were baptized in the Old Testament, they argue that then babies should be baptized in the New Testament. But to follow that reasoning, we have to ignore, again, as I mentioned, all the New Testament teaching and examples that are clearly given to us, and there are many, to baptism as being a symbol of repentance and conversion, a new life in Christ, the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we can find no scriptural precedent, as we've already mentioned, where an infant was baptized or, or qualified as, as they would explain it. We simply cannot assume that baptism takes the place of or is the same thing as circumcision. The Bible nowhere teaches that or says that. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it's interesting that, that, that often we'll use this very text to teach the baptism of infants where Paul says, And ye are complete in him, in Christ, which is the head of all principality and power in whom also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. He's talking about a spiritual work in the heart that no outward right can perform. You see, he's teaching exactly the opposite in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you have risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead." Paul here is is clearly teaching that circumcision and baptism are not the same thing. Uh, Peter Masters writes so ably in his uh, little booklet on baptism that we give out here to those who are maybe new to the faith or new to to Christianity or new to this teaching at all. It's a a very well-written and scholarly written book. And he says what Paul is saying that physical circumcision did not symbolize salvation, But Christians have received true circumcision, that is, the deliverance from the power and the dominion of sin, and this true circumcision is symbolized by baptism. In other words, baptism symbolizes something far better than physical circumcision, namely conversion, end quote. Old Testament believers were simply not saved by works. And uh, neither in the Old Testament and neither in the New Testament, Romans chapter 4 very clearly teaches, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if, and he's giving this theoretical reasoning, if Abraham were justified by works, which they argued, by the way, that he was. Remember when Jesus Christ presented himself as the Savior, what was their response to their standing before the Lord. We're Abraham's seed. We're, we're saved or we're right with God just because of our racial background, because of our circumcision, because of the sacrifices. They pointed to these things as uh, uh, evidence of them being uh, the Lord's. And he says, if that's true, if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. He has something to brag about. He could glory in those works. 
if he was justified by his works, he's got something to brag about, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Paul always takes his audience back to what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that Abraham, clearly, Abraham believed God, and it, his belief, was counted unto him for righteousness, period. That's how Abraham was saved. The Bible tells us in Galatians that the gospel beforehand was the scripture seeing beforehand that the gospel, that God would justify the heathen. The, the gospel was preached unto Abraham when the Lord appeared to him there in Ur. And so he believed what? The gospel of the coming Savior, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted to him for righteousness. It's always been curious to me that those who teach that circumcision is the, uh, that baptism is the New Testament equivalent to circumcision in the old. And we present the gospel to male and female alike. The only ones who would be saved in that analogy would be females. It, would be, it was a right given to, to males only under the Old Testament economy. And so not to females. So how can, can baptism be its counterpart? I'm lost. I'm lost upon that. Those who believe that it replaces circumcision baptize male and female babies. And so it loses its, uh, its teaching there. Again, Dr. Masters writes, the Jews of the Old Testament included vast numbers of wicked and unbelieving people, including godless kings and priests. Such people showed no signs of a work of grace in their hearts, and many perished under God's hand of judgment as a warning to others. It should be clear to us that God would never have given them circumcision as a badge or a sign of grace as if to encourage them in their presumption and wickedness. The covenant of grace was certainly operational through the teaching of the Old Testament, but only in the lives of individuals who trusted in the mercy of God and believed that he would provide a Savior just as he had, uh, Abraham believed, as we pointed out. The Jewish national covenant, which encompassed all Jews, had a different purpose from the covenant of grace, which encompassed only true believers in every age. Well, some may argue that we who immerse make a big to-do over it, that uh, the, the amount of water used in baptism and that kind of thing. But again, we point back to what it's representing. If baptism is a, a symbol or picture as it is given to us by the Lord, then obviously it is important. I don't think anyone would, would argue that it is not. I mentioned it, I maybe facetiously last Lord's Day evening, that, that no one would consider a corpse buried where a little bit of dirt had been sprinkled on the corpse. No one can say, well, that's, that's good enough. We, 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 it's just a symbol. They're dead. Dead is dead. And so we're going to sprinkle a little bit of, of, of dirt on them, and that should be enough. None of us would consider that corpse buried uh, in, in that, and neither does a small amount of water picture burial, does it? Or, or a small amount of water picture uh, baptism is baptism in John three verse twenty three. We could give several uh, instances, but just one that comes to mind. We're told why John was baptism by baptizing where he was baptizing. He was bab he was baptizing in Enon near Salim. Why? 
the Holy Spirit tells us, because there was much water there. He needed not just a cup full. He needed enough to submerge his converts. And thousands came under the baptism of John and, and turned to saving faith in the coming Messiah. He it must increase, but I must decrease. Remember, John pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Why was John baptizing in that particular place? Because there was much water, enough to baptize large amounts of people. Even John Calvin, who was not a Baptist, was quite certain that this passage referred to immersion. He wrote, from these words, it may be inferred that baptism was administered by John and Christ by plunging the whole body under the water. Here we perceive how baptism was administered, for they immersed the whole body in water. Isn't that amazing from someone who did not practice that ordinance? The English word baptize, as I've mentioned, is not a translated word where you take a word in one language and define it in another language. Uh, you, when you translate something, you tell what it means. The early English translators failed to do that with this particular word. They decided when they came to the Greek word baptizo to adopt it into the English language. And they tweaked it and called it baptize. Which if you read that word, you still don't know what it means unless you know Greek. And uh, to, it's a word borrowed or transliterated, just tr- taken across from the Greek language and adopted and placed into the English language. Any Greek lexicon, though, will tell you what it means. The early English translator could have cleared up many an argument uh, if they had uh, translated this word uh, instead of transliterating it. Uh, the, The English equivalent, giving it the English equivalent, would have either been immersed or plunged or buried. There's several words that, that it means. Uh, but they just adopted the, the Greek word. Even the Old Testament, when a Gentile was proselytized into Judaism, you were either born a Jew or you could adopt Judaism, and, and even today you can do that. The candidate was underwent circumcision and a ceremonial baths. And some people erroneously point to these ceremonial baths that the the Gentile proselytes would go through as the equivalent of New Testament baptism, and nothing could be further from the truth. Those ceremonial baths of proselytes were never referred to as baptism, never given that connotation whatsoever. John the Baptist baptizing converts was a new thing. In fact, if it had been something that he had borrowed from Judaism, it would have absolutely been blasphemy, Uh, Although people did not necessarily, the authorities did not um, endorse John, they never accused him of something uh, that that he was perverting any uh, ordinances of Judaism. In fact, he was not. He was doing, uh, uh, performing a new rite, a new ordinance in baptizing his converts. It was new. He was never accused of perverting or added to the Old Testament ordinance. He baptized those who believed in his proclamation that the Messiah was at hand, that the Messiah was here and ready to be revealed. And finally, one day, he points to him and says, that's him. He's the Messiah. These who followed John's baptism were turning from their sins and baptizing in light of the kingdom of heaven being at hand and in their midst. And they repented and believed on him. 
And we might add that there's no record that John ever baptized babies either just by uh, when you read the gospel records of his, his ministry. Clearly, baptism is a, a beautiful picture, an humbling picture of a believer who has come to faith in Christ, a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and the fact that those who believe on Christ participate in his death. We see there in Romans chapter 6, again, that beautiful picture where he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield you your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. No other picture so beautifully pictures what takes place in the heart of someone who's truly come to know Christ as their Savior, and this willingness to follow the Lord. I was raised um, in a, a church that did not teach believers' baptism, as I'm teaching to you, to you tonight. I was baptized as an infant, and uh, I remember coming to, as I came to faith in Christ as a teenager, I began to, to read the Scriptures for myself, something I had never done. And I began curiously in the book of Acts, I came home as a 15-year-old boy from a Christian school chapel service where I clearly heard the gospel and believed on Christ as my Savior. And I could not explain to you all that took place, but I knew that, that, that something drastically had, and I was a new creature in Christ. And I began reading the New Testament, and I came across the, the patterns, these pictures, these very things that I've been sharing with you tonight. And I, uh, the Holy Spirit showed me so clearly. No one came to me and said, this is what you need to do, I, although that's fine. Uh, the, the Bible alone showed me. And I began to pray and ask the Lord to, to lead me and guide me and help me to, to, to be obedient to Him in this area. And, and as I grew in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and uh, identified myself with a, a body of believers who, who uh, taught this, I kind of smile when you read the, the biography of Charles Spurgeon, uh, who was raised under, under Puritan home and the dissenting home there in, in England. He, too, found the Lord as his Savior. Even though he'd been raised in a home, he he did not understand the gospel. And he told the Lord, I'm going to visit every church in this town until I hear how to be saved. He said, I'd go to this man. He would just tediously teach and he'd teach around the world, but never tell me what to do. And I'd go to this one, and he's finally, he was uh, made his way, of all places, into a primitive Methodist church. One night, one Lord's Day, it was, it was snowing, and there was just a handful of believers there that couldn't get to church, and, and the pastor couldn't even get there. And a steward or deacon in the church got up into the pulpit, those old pulpits in England where you climb up in them like a little birdhouse up there, and, and he began to preach. And he took as his text, the text from Isaiah, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And he said, That, that poor layman just began to stumble and stammer over those words and he said well I, I see here where it says to look that doesn't take any special training to look anybody can look and here the Lord tells us if we look to him and to him alone he'll save us just like Moses when he lifted up that serpent in the wilderness when they were all dying and he came through there and he said if anybody will look on this serpent they'll be healed and he said you know what Every one of them that looked on that serpent were healed. They obeyed the Lord. They looked in faith. And he kept on. He just he stammered and stuttered and went back and forth and kept on saying, all you have to do is look to Jesus. He'll save you. You can do that, can't you? And he looked down at Charles Spurgeon, a 16-year-old boy. 
He said, young man, you look very troubled here. I want to tell you, all you need to do is look to Jesus Christ. And Charles Spurgeon, who learned to read before he went to school, he had a maiden aunt that taught him all the classics. He read John Bunyan's Pilgrim. All of that had been put into him. He'd heard preaching. His father, grandfather, great-grandfather, all stalwart preachers. He said it was like a light bulb. It went off in his head. Jesus Christ is the Savior. I'm a sinner. He'll save me. And he said it came precious to my heart. I followed him. Then he began to study. This is the interesting part. And I close here. He was away at school. His parents had sent him off to school. And he so desperately desired to follow the Lord in baptism. He saw it clearly in the Scripture. He knew he'd been saved and that baptism didn't save him, but he wanted to be obedient to his Lord. And he found a little Baptist chapel, and he went to the pastor and said, Could, would you baptize me? The, the pastor talked with him. He wrote home to his parents, and he asked his parents for permission to follow the Lord in baptism. Do you know what his mother's response was? Probably what my dear Methodist mother's response was when I told her that I wanted to follow the Lord in baptism. She wrote him back and said, Oh, Charles, I've often prayed that you would find the Lord as your Savior, but I never prayed that you'd become a Baptist. (laughs) But she willingly gave uh, her consent. And interestingly, when when the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle was built in the opening ceremonies, Charles Spurgeon had his daddy preached, and his father, of course, did not hold to the same uh, opinions about this. And, and he pointed to the baptistry, the tabernacle. It was right there in front, right below the pulpit, always on display. It was a pool where people could clearly see it. Spurgeon said the ordinances ought to always be on display, and people should see the ordinances. And his dear father, years later, pointed out, he said, you know that my son and I have... Various opinions about this here. But he said, I'll tell you one thing. If your conscience tells you that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that you should follow him in baptism after yourself, he said, you should rush to present yourself to be baptized uh, in this, this baptistry. Well, it's a wonderful thing how the Lord leads and guides. Charles Spurgeon, one day, he was to preach in a country church after he became a world-renowned preacher. And he was late. In getting there, his grandfather was in the service, and they said, well, you're his grandfather. Why don't you get up and preach till he gets here? And he began to preach, by grace are you saved through faith. And as, as the old Puritan preachers, they'd have about 50 points and 80 sub-points. And he was preaching along, and about that time, Charles Spurgeon came in, and his grandfather looked out and said, there's my grandson. He may be a better preacher than I am, but he can't preach a better gospel than I can preach. And he told Charles where he was in the outline. He said, son, come up here and pick it up and carry it on out and finish it out. And uh, he, he preached. Well, this is the word of God, and we rejoice in it. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and these things that we hold dear. We pray that you would show to every heart your will for them. There may be those in our midst who truly know you as Lord and Savior, but they've not openly identified themselves with you in this way. You so willingly gave yourself for us, Lord, wholeheartedly. You gave your body for us as a sacrifice. And the apostle tells us, beseeches us to give ourselves physically and literally over to you as a living sacrifice. So we pray that you'd answer every heart and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name.